Good morning. It's a joy to come and worship with you this morning. My name is Mike Palumbo. I'm the pastor of Relational Discipleship. A joy to serve along with David Weber uh, this morning. Well, as we continue our series, if you're here with us, maybe the first time, we have been doing a series called Spiritual Training. And for many of you, when you hear that word training, you start to cringe. And that is because when you hear training, you think more about the strain and the pain. And you're thinking to myself, I came to Sunday to rest and not to strain. Maybe you think about the strain. You think about all of the muscles that have to go in full gear. You think about all the sweat that has to be poured out from your body. You think about all the reps that you have to put up and down and up and down and maybe falling on your chest. Or maybe we think about the pain that we experience. Those muscles that we've been working are freshly torn apart. You think about the next morning and all the pain that you're going to have in your legs, your arms, your chest, all over your body. You're thinking about all sorts of ways you're not going to be able to function the next morning. But for those that have established a habit of training, you don't focus on the strain and the pain, but you know the gains of this training. You know the increased strength and the new abilities that have happened. You know all the new joys you're able to experience as you go out into the world with fresh energy. Maybe you lost some weight. Maybe you've gained some muscle mass. And I want to encourage us this morning as we're ending up and we're going to be finishing out this series next week to get in the game, to begin starting these practices. But you need to know this, that the gain of spiritual training is not salvation. We do not do these various practices, Bible reading, prayer, serving, evangelism, to somehow earn God's favor and acceptance. No, Jesus does that quite well. We do not do that ourselves. The gain is not salvation, but satisfaction, where we enjoy the glory and the goodness as our, of our Savior as we practice these disciplines of God's grace. And so if you have not yet started, let me give you one tip to training. You need to start somewhere. So I encourage you to start this week and see the good, satisfactory goodness of God, your Savior. Well, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning as we talk about the discipline of evangelism. And the Gospel of John has a select purpose to point us to the glory of Jesus, that we might believe in the Son of God and have life in His name. In chapter 3, Jesus reached out to a moral religious leader who was lost in his morality. Despite his moral goodness, he needed to be born again. And Jesus reaches him and tells him that your morality will not save you. You need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. His morality will not cover his sin. Only Jesus can do that. As we turn the corner into John 4, we see Jesus reach out to an immoral woman. A woman who is lost in her immorality. In all of her pursuit of pleasure apart from God, her chasing after different wells of satisfaction, she finds herself not only empty, but eternally condemned under the sentence of death. She desperately needs Jesus to free her. And we see in both of these passages that Christ has come to save the moral rebel and the immoral rebel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. 
to hear now the story of Jesus reaching the woman at the well in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or 12 p.m. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... As for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty we have to come here to draw water. The word of the Lord is true, reviving the soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so grateful that you came to reach the lost. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you persistently ran to the cross to die for our sins. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have sent the Holy Spirit to prick our heart by the truth of your word and to draw our affections to the beauty of Jesus. We pray, O Lord, that you would create new faith in the hearts of those that don't trust you. We pray, O Lord, that you would strengthen the faith of those that look to you. And Lord, that you would send us out into this world to bring the Savior's love to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we get started this morning, I do have a confession to make. And it's appropriate for the pastor here to share his sins uh, for you. And that is this, I I am a a spoiled, rotten husband. Anyone else have that problem? That's my problem. You see, this wasn't always the case. I wasn't always reveling and enjoying the great benefits and blessings of my wife, Whitney. No, before I married Whitney, I was a person of very little culinary expertise. You could say it like this, my cooking abilities were very low grade. One time, I decided to serve Whitney while we were dating, And I thought I would keep it really simple. And just a word of advice, if you're dating someone and this is like the first thing you do, keep it really simple. And so I brought to her house a box of cereal, a jug of milk, (laughs) and I assumed that she had some bowls, so we were covered there. I went to the bowl, I poured in the cereal, I poured in the milk, and I took the first dive into the cereal, enjoyed every single bite. And I looked over at Whitney and she looked at me with a look of disgust on her face. And she said, Mike, there's a dead cockroach in your cereal. (laughs) 
Needless to say, after this event, it was very clear that I was no longer to be the one that was going to be doing most of the cooking in our house. And Whitney has taken on that role beautifully. And she does a great job. I hope you all enjoy uh, that meal with her sometime soon. You see, Whitney's cooking is a return to Eden. It's not only a delight to the eyes, but it is good for food. But just like many pleasures that we enjoy regularly, I often forget the various blessings of her presence, the various blessings of her cooking. I often become a little bit spoiled, a little ungrateful. And it's not until we share those delicious meals with other people that I remember the goodness of her cooking. You could say it like this, it's in sharing the good food of Whitney's cooking that I remember the satisfying taste. And this is very much similar to our pursuit of evangelism. As we share the good news of the gospel with people, we remember the good taste of the gospel to us. We remember our own story of satisfaction in Jesus. Whenever we share this good news of Christ with those around us, we taste our Savior's love like it's new that morning. And we revel in His love. And that love stirs our affections towards godliness. So how do we evangelize thirsty people? This story in John 4 reminds us that everyone around us has a common thirst. This text vividly portrays that we are called to enter into these communities and bring the water of the gospel to those that are thirsty. So then the first move of our work of evangelism is we must make a human connection because each of us has a common thirst. This text very vividly portrays Jesus' humanity. We see Jesus growing in popularity. People are hearing about His message and His mission. They're looking for Him. And so He goes down the back roads into Samaria. We see in the text that it says He had to pass through Samaria. And that gives us a clue that this was an undesirable part of town. But the long journey wearied Jesus, and He was thirsty for water. So Jesus, the Son of God, sits at the well right next to this woman. And with a parched mouth, He asks her, Woman, please give me a drink of water. Jesus and this woman both have a common thirst. And they find themselves talking about the quality and the goodness of water. You see, our common conversation with people can form a bridge to the deeper desires of the human heart and their need for God. But she is shocked that Jesus even sees her as a human, let alone wants to make a human connection. Notice in verse 4-9, she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, the Samaritan people were a mixed ethnic people from among different nations around Israel. The northern tribe of Israel was kicked out of the land and sent to Assyria. And the king of Assyria repopulated the land with different people from different nations and left the poor of Israel there in the land. 2 Kings 17.33 says that they feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been brought to this land. But more often they did not fear the Lord. More often they turned from God's commandments even to the point of sacrificing their children to other gods. So they were shunned by the Jews, and they were seen as enemies of Israel. They would not associate or talk with the Samaritans. You see, just like the Jewish people, there are people that we will not share the gospel with because we do not see them as humans. 
We will not associate with them, let alone evangelize them. If we will be evangelists to the thirsty like Jesus, then we must repent for the ways that we disregard people and see them as less than human. At times, we also see people from different ethnic backgrounds as less than human, and therefore we don't share the gospel with them. We must repent of this ethnic pride where we see our own people group as more superior, as more righteous than others, and we see others as more sinful and inferior. We must repent of our love of comfort more than the Great Commission because Jesus has called us to go and bring this gospel to all nations. We must repent that we like the comfort of our own simple interactions with people we understand rather than entering into conversations with people that don't look like us, don't talk like us, or even walk like us. Jesus came to bring salvation to all nations. At times, the poor people among us, they struggle to see the rich as humans. But they see them as greedy hoarders of financial wealth at the expense of the poor. And at the same time, the rich among us sometimes struggle to see the poor as humans but as needy beggars who constantly look for a handout rather than a hand up. But God came to bring salvation to the rich and the poor among us. He has called that all of us have dignity and worth and desperately need salvation. At times we see people from a different political party as less than human than us. Even Christians buy into the hatred of the other side and shun those with different views in society. We think there is no way they can be a human and embrace the democratic values of the Democratic Party or the values of the Republican Party. The Republicans and Democrats are dying in their sin, and we won't move to them with the hope of the gospel. And many of us, I would say all of us, struggle to see our adversaries as humans. They mock us, they hurt us, they slander us. They deserve our hate and not our love. But Jesus called us to love our enemies and to bring the gospel to them, for even they are humans. You see, when we see people as humans, we begin to make human connections. When Jesus asks for water, he is making a human connection with this woman who is also thirsty. In John 4, 13-14, we see Jesus bridges our human thirst to a deeper spiritual thirst. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water bubbling up to eternal life. Jesus takes this basic human desire for water. And from there he says that he has water that satisfies beyond anything in this world. He is the water that never runs dry, but wells up to eternal life. You see, we too can make common human connections and bridge them to the deeper spiritual interests and desires. We can help make human connections and see how they connect to ultimate connections. Maybe you hear them talking about their hunger for love and their longing for a relationship that's not broken and marred by conflict. Behind this human love is a spiritual longing for satisfaction. We must connect them to Jesus, who will never forsake us, who will always fill us. We need to connect them to Jesus, who it says in the Scriptures, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
You hear them talking about coping with their failures and their desire to pursue moral change. But they are sad. They're saddened because of their defeat for doing the same thing over and over again. And this sadness of defeat only adds to their feelings of self-disgust at their inability to do the good. Behind this shame, you hear the longing for ultimate forgiveness. So we must connect them to Jesus who takes our record of debt and shame and nails it to the cross. We must tell them that Christ alone brings forgiveness. Or you hear them talk about education, work, impacting the world, and the sadness of joblessness, debt, and workaholism. We must hear behind this human labor the spiritual longing for ultimate significance. We connect them to Jesus who has given us real responsibility to build for His kingdom and impact the world for Christ. You hear them talk about hopeful plans, their future, their excitements, their joys, and the fear of death and the loss of health. Behind this human control, we hear the spiritual longing for ultimate security. We connect them to Jesus, who gives us eternal life, who grips us with His hand of saving love so tightly that we will never let go. We know that Jesus has come to resurrect even the dead. So not only do we need to make a human connection, but we also must address human corruption. You see, the thirst of every human person has been corrupted by sin. Jesus says that those who live for physical water alone will be thirsty again. This water won't ultimately satisfy She asked Jesus to give her this lasting water so that she would not have to keep coming back again and again. And Jesus responds by revealing her human corruption. She says, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answers quizzically, I have no husband. Jesus addresses her in clear terms. You are right in saying, I have no husband. You have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. When Jesus brings up these husbands, he is helping her see all the wells of water that she has been chasing throughout her life. She has chased after five men in broken marriages and has now given up a covenant commitment altogether. She has a man who is not her husband, which means that she is giving her body away without giving her whole life in covenant loyalty. She has a friend with benefits, but not a faithful bond. And the fact that she's actually drawing water at 12 p.m. probably shows that she has a shameful reputation in that community itself. You see, Jesus is calling her to look inward and see the dissatisfaction of her heart. To see the distortion of her love, which is how we are corrupted as humans. You see, this love was meant to go first toward God and out toward human people, but it has turned in on itself. And this innate selfishness, this desire to do all things for me, 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 is a corruption of sin that's happened to all of us as humans. And whenever our love is not first directed to God and then given to someone we love, whoever we love will ultimately crush us because we put expectations that are way beyond their their ability to handle Either that or it will make us explode and implode with utter selfishness and self-centeredness. You see, most conflicts, we know this, spring from two selfish people 
who are fighting over selfish goals and are creating a selfish storm? Do you see your own human corruption? David Foster Wallace is an author, and he uh, writes this about the corrupted self. He says in his commencement speech to Kenyon, he says this, that there is a deep belief in every one of us that I am the absolute center of the universe. Anyone agree with that? The realist, most vivid, and important person in existence. He notes that this core corruption of love is our default setting. It's hardwired in our boards at birth. Romans 1, 22 through 23 shows us where this is rooted in. And this self-centered corruption is rooted in false worship. Verse 22 in Romans 1, it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, and animals. You see, our hearts were made for glory. We are made for someone who is immortal. And in other words, you could say it like this, we are made for fullness that lasts forever. And what has happened in the heart of every single person is we have turned away from God, who is the fountain of living water, and we have used a huge jug full of holes to satisfy our thirst. It never really does. What Jesus is saying to this woman is that she is looking for someone created to satisfy her in a way that only the Creator can satisfy. We have all exchanged the glory of the immortal God for godless things. Later in Wallace's speech, he clarifies how human love is corrupted by misdirected worship. He says in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Brothers and sisters, this is a non-Christian's analysis of the human condition. And with a Samaritan woman, if you worship marriage, you will go from spouse to spouse to find someone who will finally complete you. You will be crushed a million times over by the emptiness of another broken relationship. The problem is not primarily divorce, but it is the object of our delight. We have put too much on a human person to satisfy us, and we have been distorted by our own selfishness. And so if we are to evangelize the thirsty, we have to ask the hard questions. We have to share the hard truths. We must lovingly reveal the inner corruption of people around us. We must call them to God, who is full of glory and immortal, who fills us forever. And the more we address people's human corruption, they will realize that they don't need a new set of rules. They don't need another self-help book. They don't need anyone to help them walk through life. They need a new life. They need a rebirth, a change of their fundamental nature that they might cry out to God in mercy and seek His salvation in Jesus. 
they'll realize they don't need a simple dust of the screen, but a new hardware at the core of their humanity. You see, St. Augustine was right when he said, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Have you come to worship this morning tired? Are you exhausted by the constant looking for life in various people, places, and things? Turn and trust in Jesus. He will give you the rest your heart longs for. And so we see this need for us to make a human connection. We see this need for us to address human corruption. And finally, we must look at people, the people that Jesus came to die for, and address their thirst. And we must tell them that Jesus alone satisfies that thirst. We must declare Jesus' saving work and His surpassing worth. Look at the text at John 4.19. After Jesus addresses her human corruption, she quickly changes the subject to another matter. She turns attention away from herself and onto Jesus in a controversial debate. Listen to what she says. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. You seem to have insight into my life. Let's talk about you for a little bit. Let's leave aside these husbands and these relationships. Let's just talk about prophecy. What's it like? It must be incredible. But see, Jesus sees through the pretense. He loves her too much to divert to another topic of lesser significance than her personal salvation. You see, she knows that Jesus is from Jerusalem. She knows that he has a firm conviction that that the temple in Jerusalem is the only place to worship. And so she brings up this hot political topic about proper worship rather than her personal corruption. But Jesus looks at her with love and says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know. For salvation comes from the Jews. He talks about worship, proper worship, in the context of salvation. You see, Jesus knows proper worship because He knows the God that saves He is among the Jewish people. He has heard the good stories of God and His mercy redeeming the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, bringing them into the promised land. He knows this God who forgives sins as far as the east is from the west. He knows that the Lord saves. And He knows that this woman desperately needs His saving work. And so the conversation goes on and she says, Well, look, when Messiah comes, He'll explain all these things clearly. And in a profound moment of shocking awareness, Jesus says, I am He. And we know that the Messiah, the Savior King, has come not to primarily teach us new rules, but to die for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a punishment that brings us peace. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Just as 1 Peter says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. We must declare to them that Jesus has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. By Jesus' perfect life, He gives us His perfect record. 
by Jesus' sacrificial death, He pays the penalty and the punishment for our sin. By Jesus' glorious resurrection, He gives us new life. You see, after this woman hears of Jesus, after she hears of His salvation, after He interacts with her in love, she begins to see His surpassing worth. And this is what it means to worship Jesus in spirit and truth. To come to Jesus hungry and thirsty. To long for Him and to look to Him as our only source of life. You see, worship is the act of coming to God thirsty. And finding all of our satisfaction in His glorious worth. It is looking upon Him. Beholding His power and glory. Declaring that His steadfast love is better than life. It is blessing Him as long as we live and through our daily life. After this woman sees Jesus' saving work and surpassing worth, she leaves her water basin by the well. The water she came to receive, she simply leaves it. And this is very symbolic. She is in doing this, turning away from those small sources of life that she used to pursue and is trusting in Jesus, the satisfying Savior who is her only source of life. We must lay aside the passing pleasures of our sin and lay hold of the surpassing Christ. And this is what it means to become a Christian. Having her, first, her thirst satisfied, she goes back to her hometown to declare Jesus' saving work and surpassing worth. Many Samaritans from that town believe, not only because of the woman's testimony, but because they heard of Jesus in that testimony. He told me all that I ever did. It's a pretty unimpressive testimony, isn't it? That you saw every single thing that I did and that's it? What is going on here? You see, what she's saying is, this Jesus saw all of her sin. This Jesus saw all of her dissatisfaction. This Jesus saw all of her shame. And He didn't leave her like all the other husbands. No. She saw in Jesus a merciful Savior who doesn't condemn her in sin, but offers her steadfast love and salvation. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In John 4.40 it says, So when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Jesus to stay with them. They wanted to be with Jesus. They saw His steadfast love. They longed for His salvation. And many more believed because of Jesus' word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Much like the Samaritan woman, St. Augustine was a thirsty man who walked down many roads to find the destination of his delight. In his book, Confessions, we see his journey of joy as he sought for joy in all the wrong places. You see, St. Augustine was raised in the church. He heard the good old story of Jesus, but he left down the road away from his home like the young prodigal son. He went on a journey to find satisfaction in life apart from God in academics, rhetorical ability and skill. He went off to find it in political engagement, civic responsibility in the empire of Rome. He went off to find life in sexual relationships with a mistress for numerous years, not withholding any pleasure, but chasing after them all. But he came to his senses, and he realized 
everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that Jesus will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that Jesus will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And can I tell you this morning that it brings me great joy to see my brother Magic Brown right in front of here becoming a member of this church. Because you know, the first time I met Magic Brown was, one, was with one of my non-Christian friends. And then you know, the next time I talked with Magic Brown was in my office when he was in tears, grieving over his sin, longing to trust in Jesus, to find life in Him. And so we walked together through the Gospel. We talked about the surpassing worth of Jesus and His saving work. And my brother Magic Brown today has become a member of this church. May God do that more among us as we step out in faith, as we enter into this community, as we see people as humans, and as we share Jesus, His saving work and surpassing worth with them. Hear St. Augustine's words about his own journey and the way that Jesus drew him. He says in the Confessions, Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. You called me and cried to me and broke upon my deafness. You sent forth your beams and shone upon me and chased away my blindness. You breathed your fragrance upon me and I drew in my breath and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I burn for your peace. Beloved, Jesus is the Savior of this world. So let us go into the world, making human connections, sharing the good news of the Gospel, being awkward for the sake of God's glory. And let us bring the hope that this world so desperately longs. For it is only in Jesus that the thirsty will be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise You, the fountain of living water, the One who satisfies our thirst, the One who is the heartbeat of our longing. We praise You, Jesus, that You pursued the sinners, that You sought out the lost, that You walked among us, You entered our struggle, and You died and rose again. Jesus, we so desperately need your forgiveness. And if anyone has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change their heart, that you'd renew their desires, that they would trust in Christ this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Send us out into this neighborhood, into this world, for the sake of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.